Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that prides itself on bringing you the news before it becomes news. As well, of course, as the best insight and analysis into all the topics you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry, and with me as always is Duncan Castles. And just to go back to that little bit that we always say at the start, the podcast that brings you the news first before anyone else. Well, I think all of our regular listeners will agree that you have been kept abreast of and indeed in front of anyone else when it comes to the Manchester City versus UEFA uh, in terms of the transgression of financial fair play rules. Of course, we are now know that Manchester City have been banned from European football for two years by UEFA for um, breaking the rules on financial fair play. Uh, I suppose they've had a weekend now uh, to discuss, to um, mull over that what came as, I think, quite a shock, Duncan, with regards to the fact it was two years. I think a lot of people believed uh, that it may be a little bit more lenient and one year would have been what the ban would have turned out to be. Um, it's our information that, as part of the preparation stroke planning ahead, should indeed they be forced to uh, serve time outside of European football, that the City Chiefs have decided to offer players a loyalty bonus for those who stay on through any season, i.e. at one or two, to play through that season for Manchester City uh, when they are not allowed to play in European football. Remember, it's not just Champions League, it's Europa League as well, should that be the case. Our understanding is that the current offer being talked about uh, ranges between 10 and 20% of a player's gross salary. Um, Duncan, before I bring you in this, I'm just going to give one example. So the players uh, currently highest paid at City, Kevin De Bruyne, um, would earn just under an extra £4 million in any one season that City didn't play in Europe. As far as the total uh, wage bill for the club, which was reported at the end of the 2019 season, was £260 million, would mean that depending on that 10 to 20% ratio, it could cost City Duncan in the region of approximately £41 to £52 million per annum to pay. Can you see this as being a solution, Duncan, to what is clearly the fans' fear that they will lose their best players because they won't be allowed to compete in Europe? It's an attempt to to solve what is a very serious problem for Manchester City should they fail in their attempt to have this ban um, set aside by the Court of Arbitration for Sport or fail um, after failing at the Court of Arbitration for Sport to take it to a state or um, uh, supranational courts such as uh, the European Court of Justice, which is something that was indicated as an option by Manchester City in their immediate response to um, the ban 
that came down from UEFA, quite ironically, on Valentine's Day. That was a, you could say it was a, a Valentine's massacre um, inflicted upon Manchester City by UEFA. Um, and I, according to uh, Manchester City, came uh, not as a surprise, um, but of great disappointment. But they were, they, were, they were clear in stating that in the first instance, they will commence proceedings with the Court of Arbitration for Sport at the earliest opportunity. Um, they have, of course, threatened in the past uh, when they were uh, found guilty of breaching financial fair play for the first time. Remember, this is the second time UEFA found them guilty of, of these um, crimes in, in a football sense. Um, the threat from Khaldun al-Mubarak to Gianni Infantino, who was then the uh, general secretary at UEFA, was that he would rather spend millions of pounds suing UEFA for the next 10 years than accept a, a plea bargaining deal with them at that time. Um, but obviously, in the short term, the issue they have is uh, keeping their players that they want to retain in the current squad and devising a strategy to add new players to that squad. Because remember, we've been reporting on the transfer window for a while now that Pep Guardiola has been pressuring Manchester City to engage in a radical overhaul of his squad. Once um, perhaps four new first-team starters next season because he feels the squad is tired, not responding to his instruction in the way it did before, and needs to be upgraded to have a chance of competing with Liverpool in the Premier League next season. So what, what they have planned is substantial spending on transfer fees, substantial spending on wages. And now what they are suggesting, according to your information, as a way of retaining players who they would like to keep and are unhappy and worried about this situation is a 10 to 20% addition to um, their current wage bill just to hold on to those players. You add that to the difficulty of attracting new players. Suddenly, you go to um, an Adama Traore, for example, who has been targeted as uh, as a replacement, potential replacement for Leroy Zani for next season. You go to Adama Traore and you have to say to him, well, um, we think we're going to have Champions League football next year. We are confident that we will get this overturned at CAS. Um, we, we have been um, traduced by UEFA and their um, semi-independent judicial process and, and this ban is unfair and we expect to have it removed. But from the player's side, there can be no categorical promise um, and no categorical expectation that he will actually have Champions League football next year. And when you have other clubs, um, serious top-level European clubs interested in signing you. And this isn't just Adama's case. It's going to be the case with a, a range of players, the category of players that that Manchester City want to add to their squad to improve things are the players who will be targeted by other top Champions League clubs who have guaranteed Champions League football. Um, the choice then becomes, do you want to go to Manchester City with very significant and obvious legal problems facing them, with potentially large sporting problems facing them, with the possibility that their coach may leave uh, and take up a, and offer a standing invitation he has to go to Juventus uh, and be the next coach there. That, these are a lot of elements that, and, and additional complications that have been added to the, the very basic process of retaining squad and improving squad, which you have to say Manchester City have been very good at over the last um, decade or so of Abu Dhabi ownership and which they 
they've used their expertise at as part of the process of, of, of getting to a stage where they can win back-to-back Premier Leagues. But they've never had to do it in this um, in these circumstances before, where um, as far as the governing body of European football is concerned, as far as the body that determines the rules of the Champions League, they should not be playing Europe, European football of any kind, Champions League or Europa League, for the next two seasons. Interestingly, Duncan, this is unknown territory for um, Khaldun al-Mubarak, Sheikh Mansour. These are very, very powerful men. What they want, they get. If they don't get it the first time, they'll go back and try and get it the second and third and fourth until they succeed in what they get. However, this is, seems to me, not see, I think it's factually correct, that this is one um, aspect that they didn't envisage and where they cannot simply throw money or power in order to get what they want. And just as a, as a little kind of uh, cameo here, people just look at footballers and think, oh, aren't they lucky they get to play football from living there and multi-million pounds, et cetera, et cetera. Think about the case of Sergio Aguero, 32 years old, hasn't won the Champions League. Obviously, you would think an ambition very, very close to his heart that he should do so before he retires. Uh, he is, I'm told, torn by this uh, what situation that he finds himself in as a person who is very loyal to his club. Uh, he is breaking all sorts of records as Manchester City goalscorer, etc., etc. He's the longest-serving player at the club, club since Vincent Company left. And he himself wanted or wants to, to lead Manchester City to the first-ever Champions League. Now, still has the chance of doing that this season, of course. But should they not win it this season and the ban is held up, really... What's an extra two and a half? I'm not being flippant. What's an extra two and a half million pounds for a season mean to Sergio Aguero in a very successful career? He's not doing it for the money anymore. He wants that trophy. And I think that's one of the problems which Mubarak and the club face. Even their most loyal players will take a look at the situation and say, this wasn't what I was told. The club told everyone consistently along this process that nothing was going to happen, that the club would be found innocent and things would carry on as normal. And this has been a massive shock to the players as well. Yeah, look look at Pep Guardiola. Pep Guardiola has been the spokesman for Manchester City through most of this. The individual who has said the most about UEFA's investigation and the potential um, punishment that came down has been Guardiola. He's been forced into defence of it on multiple occasions. And he has... I think, been very careful in how he's expressed these matters um, during that period. He, he has um, defended City. He said um, he didn't expect the club to get a ban. He expected it to be resolved. But he's also repeatedly made it clear that he wasn't involved in the period in which these um, transgressions are, uh, that they have been tried for occurred. And that he had talked to Kaldun Al-Mubarak, who is the club's chairman and who is a very senior politician in Abu Dhabi. People sometimes forget just how important he is in the, in the running of Abu Dhabi as a country. And he's talked to his chief executive, Ferrand Soriano, and they had told him that there would be no ban, that there had been no transgressions, um, and that he trusted their opinion and trusted what he was telling them. But he also said on more than one occasion, if we, if there is a punishment, we will accept it and we will move forward. 
The city haven't done that. They very clearly haven't accepted the punishment. In fact, they put out an incredibly um, intemperate statement on Friday in response to the UEFA ban and made it very clear that they were going on the attack against UEFA, an attack that they'd already entered on, but they made it clear they weren't backing down and they were going to further antagonise the situation. So I think it's worth reading out what they said. This Manchester City is disappointed but not surprised by today's announcement by the UEFA Adjudicatory Chamber. Club has always anticipated the ultimate need to seek out an independent body and process to impartially consider the comprehensive body of irrefutable evidence in support of its position. December 2018, the UEFA chief investigator publicly previewed the outcome and sanction he intended to be delivered to Manchester City before any investigation had even begun. Subsequent flawed and consistently leaked UEFA process he oversaw has meant that there was little doubt in the result that he would deliver. The club has formally complained to the UEFA disciplinary body, a complaint which was validated by a cast ruling. Simply put, this is a case initiated by UEFA, prosecuted by UEFA and judged by UEFA. With this prejudicial process now over, the club will pursue an impartial judgment as quickly as possible and will therefore, in the first instance, commence proceedings with the Court of Arbitration for Sport at the earliest opportunity. Um, that has been broken down in some excellent pieces um, following the statement. I, I, I would refer the listeners in particular to one by David Conn uh, of The Guardian, who actually is a journalist who's probably had better access to the Abu Dhabi regime and uh, ownership of, of Manchester City than any other. He's, if you look through his past work, he's been invited to do very detailed um, interviewing and reporting on the project. And, and he, in his piece, points out basically the, the ludicrous nature of this defence from Manchester City. The idea that the, co the 2018 comment by Yves Leterme, uh, a former Belgian prime minister, uh, publicly previewed the outcome and sanction he intended to be delivered to Manchester City. This is what Leterme actually said. It was a, a, to a Belgian um, magazine called Sport and Strategy. He said, if it is true what has been written, there might be a serious problem. This can lead to the heaviest punishment exclusion from UEFA competitions. If the information is correct, this possibly goes against truthful reporting which is as, as caveated as it comes. There's loads of conditional elements into it. All he's really saying there is, um, if you break the rules of financial fair play, which are part of the Champions League competition entry criteria, um, then uh, you do it in, in as egregious a manner as the, uh, the Football League's Der Spiegel reports suggest, and we're talking about email, uh, Manchester City email written evidence, that they were breaking the rules, then it can lead to a heavy punishment, which is exclusion from competitions. So he's not saying that is what was what is going to happen. He's just saying that if it's proven to be the case, it could happen. Um, the attack on UEFA's process and the idea that there's some kind of kangaroo court and that it's unfair that UEFA initiate and prosecute and judge, well, that's how football works. Um, you have a governing body that implements its rules. If you break the rules, you are investigated 
by the governing body who then punish you for doing so. This happens time and time again, year after year after year in football. It's the basis on which clubs enter competitions. They, they have to be part of the, the competing organisation. They sign up to the rules. They're supposed to adhere to them. And, and the idea, as David Combe points out, is that, um, that UEFA's court was prejudiced and was always going to um, uh, decide in this fashion just misses out how how complex and how um, carefully constructed the UEFA disciplinary process is. There are two semi-independent chambers, one an investigatory chamber, the one headed up by the former Belgian Prime Minister Leterme, and an adjudicatory chamber. Um, the, the, the individuals on the adjudicatory chamber who looked at the evidence the investigatory chamber had put together. Um, and remember, City here, weren't uh, re the ban wasn't recommended simply for those huge breaches of financial fair play regulations. It was also recommended because they failed to cooperate with the investigation. So that chamber was chaired by a former general prosecutor of the, of the Portuguese state. Um, it also included a Dutch law professor uh, Louis Pela, a, a very experienced Swiss judge, um, a former Polish sports minister, and uh, an English barrister, um, Charles Flint, who's a, a, a Queen's counsel, who is the president of UK's National Anti-Doping Panel and a, a director, interesting enough, of Dubai's Financial Services Authority. If these are serious people with decades of reputation in a judicial process behind them. And City are basically saying what they are as a kangaroo court who are biased and were always, from the very beginning, going to come up with this judgment that City be kicked out of the competition. Now, that is an incredibly intemperate and arrogant statement from a football club to make, and one which is going to be fascinating to see them try and defend that case before the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And eventually, when, when they do that, there's a possibility that might be an open um, process. Be it very interesting if it is made an open process, it would re require Manchester City to assent to that. And presumably, since they're so sure of their case and they're sh so sure that they have been um, unfairly treated by UEFA, they'd be happy for their defence to be um, immediate public knowledge during the process. But it, even if it's not, we will get to, to hear that defence at the end and we'll get to see how they explain away these emails, which, remember, City have never, in any of their communications over this matter, said that any of those emails that have been published by Football Leaks were not genuine emails. Their argument has been that they were illegally obtained by hacking and used out of context, but not at any point have they said that, that they weren't true. And, and those emails, for example, detail that the, the huge sponsorship deal that they received from Etihad, um, the, the national airline carrier, which happens to be owned by Abu Dhabi State, um, only a tiny percentage of the money actually came from Etihad. The rest was paid from the holding company Abu Dhabi United Group that owns the shares of Manchester City. Um, so th the, the defence is going to be fascinating and, and I think it's telling that according to um, the sources involved that when City were offered the opportunity to explain how those emails were um, 
provided out of context and how actually the the suggestion that they had um, they'd broken financial fair play rules by funding direct from the ownership rather than through sponsors. Um, they were they refused to provide further digital email evidence or evidence of their from their accounts to demonstrate that um, that it was in fact untrue. These are incredibly complex uh, and often, as, as you point out, Duncan, legal arguments, which um, mean, of course, that uh, Manchester City and UEFA have to go down all sorts of avenues and indeed a lot of cul-de-sacs as well with regards to um, the interpretation uh, of uh, the rules of financial fair play as well as the application of those rules. It seems to me, though, if you let's just take away the sort of legal uh, legalese, if you like, and look at the simple principle that you started that part of this uh, conversation with, which is when you sign up to a competition which has a, a set of rules that goes alongside it that you must also adhere to, and you break those rules, you have to expect to be punished for the fact that you broke those rules. And just say I've been found guilty of breaking rules, and they don't want to accept that they've been found guilty of that. Instead, they're blaming flawed process. And in this case, they are claiming that UEFA, as a governing body, is biased against them. Despite the fact it's UEFA who set the rules of the competition, and UEFA indeed governed that competition, one which Manchester set a desperate to win in terms of the Champions League, as we know. It's almost like uh, if we take it on the field of play and one team scores a goal, uh, there's absolutely nothing illegal about uh, in the build-up or the way the goal is scored. Uh, even VAR have confirmed it's a goal. But the opposing club, who have lost the goal, pick the ball out of the net and walk off the pitch saying, no, it's not a goal, sorry, we don't accept that goals uh, decide games. We're, not, we're basically not, not, not up for this. Uh, we're changing the rules. Now, Manchester City are behaving in a very sort of puerile way. They're basically saying, it's our ball, we're going home now because we don't like the way you play the game. And in effect saying, well, OK, you can all play by those rules, but we don't play by those rules. And that's, I think, one of the problems um, that I think football has right now with regards to Manchester City's attitude towards UEFA. Um, and Duncan, I don't think either of us believe that we've anywhere near seen or heard the last of this. And, of course, one of the um, tactics you could say, policies that Manchester City may decide to pursue or indeed may already be pursuing behind the scenes is to threaten uh, to join with other so-called elite super clubs and threaten UEFA with the prospect of losing their Blue Ribbon competition, the Champions League and Europa League by having a breakaway Super League. Yeah, I, I think here the, the context is Abu Dhabi as a nation. This is a non-democratic nation. It's, it's, a, it's a country which is run by a royal family and it's run by some of the people who are directors of Manchester City, Khaldun al-Mubarak being uh, a key individual here. You have Simon Pearce, another director of Manchester City, who's um, a, a kind of communications expert and strategist for the leadership of Abu Dhabi, who in, in one of the emails um, detailed by Football Leaks, uh, is asked by 
Manchester City's um, financial officer about um, changing the dates of payments from sponsors to try and massage the figures to uh, uh, meet FFP rules. Uh, asked whether that's whether they can do that or not, and Pierce replies, "Of course, we can do what we want." And I think I think this is the the key issue here. And um, Manchester City started off as a as a kind of proxy brand in in, in former chief executive. Uh, Gary Cook's words for Abu Dhabi. It was an advertising project for the country. It was a way of promoting its image. Um, and, it, and it then turned into this conflict with uh, the, some of the established powers in European football. And City's response has been, we can do what we want. It's kind of the response of the nation. We can solve problems with our power. Uh, um, if there is a, an individual who causes, causes us difficulties within the country, we will deal with that individual. If UEFA's rules are preventing us um, from winning the Champions League, then we'll find a way around those rules. Uh, and what football leaks have detailed, what their Spiegel have detailed, is the, you know, the intricate ways in which they went about trying to find a way around and, and successfully did so until these emails came out and they got caught on a secondary investigation by UEFA of breaching them. And as you say, the question is what happens next. So clearly, Manchester City are going back to that threat, or they're going back to that threat that they had in 2014 last time, they, and the first occasion they were investigated by UEFA, which was, we will bring you down. We will use tens of millions of, of pounds of le on legal fees to bring you down, to win our case if necessary. Um, you can look at the, the CAS verdict from their first challenge to um, even being investigated by UEFA, where they uh, turned up at the CAS court with eight separate lawyers, including a Queen's counsel, including their, um, their uh, chief internal lawyer, Simon Cliff, um, an individual who is, um, in those emails is, uh, is, uh, is reported as saying when the, the former the chair of the investigatory committee, Jean-Luc Dehaene, died, um, he's uh, quoted as, as joking in an email that uh, one down and six to go, um, Dehaene being one of a seven-person investigatory uh, chamber. And there's never been any apology from Cliff or from... Uh, or from Manchester City for that email, which once again, Manchester City have never denied that that's a genuine email, merely that it's been hacked and used out of context. So no surprise that they go to CAS and they indicate that they will go to other courts. That's one way of, uh, of attacking UEFA and tying them up in legal costs. And remember in that, that initial challenge, which, which was thrown out by CAS, they wanted damages from UEFA for even running the investigation in the fashion they did. And, and we're claim, claiming um, Swiss law personality um, rights damages, uh, wanted the costs of the case and, and interest paid as, as well as part of that. So that, there you have um, a demand from UEFA for significant amounts of money. I would expect this to carry on. Um, if they go to a national court, if they go to the European court, it, that the threat is this will take years and it will take tens of millions of euros for you to deal with and there will be pressure on you. At the same time as there is this threat 
and a very significant threat. And it's not just Manchester City that are involved in this threat that the Champions League be stripped from UEFA and go to another governing body or another organisation that's set up to allow the most affluent clubs in, in football um, to have a European Super League or potentially a World Super League. And we've talked about how FIFA, Gianni Infantino, who was involved in the initial plea bargaining settlement in 2014 when he was at UEFA, Gianni Infantino is trying to gain access to this Super League through uh, a FIFA World Club Cup, an expanded FIFA World Club Cup, using money, um, potential money that's being offered by Saudi Arabia and other um, Middle East backers. Um, the threat that Manchester City uh, remove themselves and remove their, their, uh, their status as a super club from UEFA altogether and go and, and, and press for the Super League to be organised by another governing body is, uh, is an obvious one. And, uh, and I think the other aspect that we have to pay attention to going forward is, I think UEFA, you can say, have been very brave in handing down this ban. Um, the threats from City have been clear. We see how they've acted once the ban has happened. And UEFA have been prepared to go head to head with them. Um, and it's, it's the, the issues are by no means over and it's by no means dead. And it's by no means limited just to the appeal against the financial fair play punishment of two seasons, Champions League or Europa League ban. Well, in uh, a gentler time, let's say, alone, by no means uh, necessarily a gentler personality. There used to be a joke at UEFA, uh, the week of Champions League games that involved Manchester United and uh, the guys in the disciplinary committee and the referee appointments committee and in the cafeteria in the onset, et cetera, would always say, right, let's have a sweepstake on how long it takes Sir Alex Ferguson to complain about the referee you've appointed and make a, a, an issue of a decision that referee's made, which could be questionable. Funnily enough, there was always one person richer than me on the end of that week. Uh, moving to Manchester United with that seamless segue um, and to the travails of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who doesn't really have his troubles to seek. Um, we have reported on the podcast recently about... Um, the rather unseemly situation at Solskjaer's former club, Molda, um, where a player um, is on trial for an alleged rape incident. Uh, since then, uh, Solskjaer has been put under scrutiny with regards to his behaviour uh, through the initial investigation. Of course, that is still under legal process in Norway as well. Duncan, this is something which Solskjaer really doesn't need on top of uh, you know, the fact that results remain poor and inconsistent um, at a time as well when uh, there's lots of talk about rebuilds, et cetera, et cetera, but maybe not uh, rebuilding in his image and in someone else's. Uh, you spotted something just a little unusual with regards to the reporting of a press conference last week, didn't you, of uh, Solskjaer's pre-match press conference? Yeah, the player in question is Babakar Saar, um, who has been represented by Jim Solbakken, um, Gunnar Solskjaer's personal agent, who was signed by Molda um, in 2016 after being accused of rape at his former club. Um, that case was eventually dropped, um, but was then he was then um, accused of rape as a Molda player. Um, 
the, the Norwegian legal system is different from the UK system. So you have a, a professional judge and two lay uh, judges who decide on um, the punishment. And uh, Sar was acquitted by the two lay judges. The professional judge decided he should still be responsible for um, paying compensation to the, the woman who had alleged that he had raped her. And um, there's this... During this process, Mulder continued to play SAR. Um, Solskjaer attra attracted a, a good deal of criticism from the Norwegian press for uh, his support of the player and comments he'd made about him. Eventually, SAR was moved, uh, his contract was terminated and he was moved to a Russian club and, and then to a Saudi Arabian club, uh, both countries which do not have extradition treaties with Norway. Uh, which prevented him from being tried in other um, cases that were uh, uh, rape cases that had been alleged against him in Norway. This has been extensively reported in Norway. Uh, last week, The Telegraph um, went and interviewed one of the women who was involved in one of these rape cases, and she stated that... Uh, she didn't think that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was a fit individual uh, to be manager of Manchester United. Um, the interview was done by uh, one of the Telegraph's sports reporters, Ben Rumsby. A um, number of very detailed pieces, also details the questions he put to Manchester United about the case, a long list of questions to which the only um, formal response Manchester United gave was that uh, as manager of Molda at the time, Uli Gunnar Solskjaer fully respected the due process of the Norwegian legal system, which is still ongoing. Um, Romsby then went to the press conference and asked Solskjaer in person all about the, the women's statements, whether he had any regrets over his handling of the case and whether he would do anything differently if the same happened at United. And his reply was, I think I can only answer what I've done through the club. This is a case that that going through the legal system in Norway, and we've got to respect that legal process there and end it there. Um, he was then asked, uh, and it was pointed out to him that people had questioned his decisions to pick the player after the court found Saar on, on the balance of probability to have committed this act. He said, I just answered the reply. Of course, I understand how difficult this situation is for him then his, his answer tails off. You don't want anyone to be in such a situation. And every part involved in that case is they don't have a good time. But that's my answer. This was part of the, the standard pre-match press conference, actually, for um, this evening's match against Chelsea. Normally, you can see video of these press conferences on YouTube. In fact, Manchester United themselves now have a YouTube account where they will post um, very helpfully the, the entire... Um, content of those pre-match press conferences so supporters and, and anyone else can uh, watch them. As of this morning, that video wasn't available on YouTube. Um, Manchester United hadn't posted it. None of the other, um, other YouTube accounts that usually post those press conferences had posted it. Um, I think you can see from, from this general situation there's a real difficulty for Bolshar here. Um, you know, he is already under pressure for it, the core elements of his job. 
um, the results he has produced as Manchester United manager. He now has um, his relationship with Jim Solback and his agent, who he has a history of signing players from at all his previous clubs, um, who is a business partner of um, the agent of Odin Igalo, who's the player they ended up um, signing in the January window at the last minute, who uh, was the agent who brought Josh King to Manchester United as a teenager, who was the other another player that Manchester United tried to sign just before deadline. Um, and this story of how Solskjaer behaved with a player who was charged with serious crimes in Norway and how he, um, on record in press conferences, defended the selection of that player in, in that situation. And the, you know, this huge number of questions that have been asked about it in Norway and are now starting to be asked about it in the English press. Um, I don't think this helps Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in any way and it's, um, it's, it's additional pressure on his position, uh, which he clearly doesn't need given that he's under severe pressure because of, his perform of the performances of his football team on the football pitch. Um, with Solskjaer, Duncan, we seem to be getting um, more reports like every week. Uh, more reports uh, surface about Solskjaer not being in charge of Manchester's in the next season. This despite the very, very uh, strong um, promises that he would certainly be in charge for the longer term, which uh, were being given uh, by sources at the club only at the turn of the year. Um, going into the January window, um, when they did strengthen, albeit you know in a smaller way than uh, I think Solskjaer would have liked, we've got a, a situation where they know they have to continue or, or indeed <laughs> ignite a rebuild in the summer transfer window. There has to be serious questions as to the way that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is the man to do that. If I were to be, so let's say, fast forwarding to the end of the season and for whatever reasons combined or this uh, that Solskjaer was to leave the club. Would you agree that it's more likely uh, it would be a softer um, landing, if you like, for both club and the manager himself if he was, let's just say, invited to resign rather than sacked? Yeah, I think that is the, the easiest way out for both parties. Um, if you have to move Solskjaer out of the club at the end of the season, and you know there, there are multiple good reasons for for doing that at present in terms of his management of the football team, um, avoiding having to sack him would look good for Manchester United. It would avoid having to sack yet another manager of the Edward Wood era if they can get Solskjaer to in some way say, "Look, I tried my best." I love this club, which we know he does. Um, but having looked at what I've achieved, what I've been able to achieve over the course of this, by that stage, it'll be a year and a half in, in charge of the football team. I realise I cannot take it to where it has to be. And therefore, I'm going to resign my position honourably. That would, I think, aid his ongoing reputation with the Manchester United supporters and aid the Glazers' case in the sense that they didn't have to um, sacrifice Bambi. 
so I think that is definitely one potential outcome we should be looking at as a strong possibility at the end of the season. And we know, as we've reported on the podcast, that Maurizio Pochettino is targeting this job and is very much admired by people at the club. You do have to add there's one you know, uh, element that has gone in Solskjaer's favour in the last week, which is that Champions League ban for Manchester City opens up the prospect of an additional um, qualifying place that Manchester United might be able to attain through the Premier League. So if Manchester City are failing their case and they are banned for next season with Cass and you know there, there, there's issues with timing of the, the judgment, whether it, it would be stayed or not, um, the Manchester City could ask for it to be stayed and therefore for them to be allowed to stay in Champions League competition next season until Cass have made a decision. We'll see whether that happens or not. But as it stands, the fourth Champions League qualifying place will go to the fifth place team in the Premier League, which suddenly opens up a, a better possibility for Solskjaer to achieve Champions League qualification, which is what the Glazers desperately want to prevent them losing substantial monies from being part of the Champions League and substantial sponsorship monies by failing to, to qualify for two consecutive seasons. And on the other hand, Duncan, given the uh, queue of clubs around Manchester United, we're also looking for that fifth place uh, potential spot. If uh, United weren't to achieve it, even though City are banned and therefore that spot became a possibility, it makes it even easier for that invitation of resignation uh, that we've just spoken about. It's true. And, and remember, going into tonight's game, they are ninth, they're now ninth in the Premier League, albeit with that one game in hand. But that game in hand is against Chelsea, um, head-to-head at Stamford Bridge. Um, they've beaten Chelsea twice this season already, comprehensively in the first Premier League game and also in the League Cup. So um, Solskjaer could be understandably confident about finding a way to beat Chelsea again. But if they don't, um, fourth place looks extremely difficult because that would open up a nine-point gap to Chelsea. If they do win they move to within three points of Tottenham, but still behind uh, Sheffield United uh, and just ahead of Wolves and Everton who are on a, on a fantastic run and Wolves who you know, will argue that um, they were very unfortunate not to take the three points against Leicester City at the weekend. So, and you're right, if they fail given five, you know, five, fifth place being good enough to get into the Champions League, it does even further increase the pressure on Solskjaer to to exit at the end of the season and allow someone else to um, to try and restore the club he loves to the status that um, they should have within the English and European game. This is Monday's Transfer Window and of course it's the podcast for the thinking fan and I'm sure what we've been speaking about today has given quite I'd say everyone something to think about. Uh, being Monday's podcast, we're going to finish off with heroes and villains, Duncan. I feel like we've had quite a few heroes and villains, certainly villains, in the podcast already. <laughs> I think we're chock, chock a block with villains today. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll throw one more into the mix. After you've given us your hero, please, Duncan. I, I think the hero of this past week has to be Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, why this particular week? Well, it was the, the week in which he... Uh, put up a record of 35 goals in his last 35 uh, games for club and country 
at the age of 35, playing in one of the Premier Leagues of European football. Um, I, I, don't, I haven't actually checked whether anyone has ever managed to achieve that before. I'd be very surprised if they have. Um, and I think indicates that you know, Cristiano's promised that he wants to play until he's 40 and will keep scoring at a high rate and break all records during that process. He's, uh, he does seem to be holding fast to that promise at present. I could see him in goal when he's 60. <laughs> Never mind scoring goals the way he's going just now. Uh, my villain's going to be a bit closer to home than uh, anywhere else in Europe, etc. Uh, it's going to be Aston Villa defender Bjorn Engels, who despite scoring to, um, let's just say, some would say he, he gained some kind of salvation uh, for the second equaliser Villa against Spurs, uh, having conceded a penalty um, before that. His absolute comedy of error, bit of defending in the final seconds of that game, which allowed Tottenham to win 3-2. Um, and Son Heumann, he became the first Asian player to score 50 goals in the Premier League. Uh, I think there will be a lot of Brighton fans uh, who will be voting for Son as their player of the year, uh, given where Aston Villa would have been had uh, he not netted that third goal in added time. So Bjorn Engels, uh, you are this week's transfer window villain of the weekend. <laughs> To keep the debate going with us uh, until Wednesday's podcast, please do contact us at our social media accounts. That's at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, on Instagram and Facebook. Duncan is at Duncan.Castles on Instagram. Is that correct, Duncan? Yes. You can tell I'm slightly still a little bit rusty on this one. Uh, Duncan, of course, is at Duncan Castles on Twitter. I'm at Garbo SJ. If you love it, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. It gets the content out there to even more to join our community. That's it for Monday's podcast. We look forward to seeing you through the transfer window on Wednesday. Thanks for listening.